How do we explain the many problems that seem to be caused by religion in our society? Welcome to the Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. In this episode, we explore the purpose of religion and the problems it causes. We're going to play for you an interview we conducted with Dr. Merlin Mowry a few years ago. She is a retired associate professor of social ethics, Department of Philosophy and Religion at Central Michigan University. Here's the interview with Dr. Mowry. Welcome, Dr. Mowry. Thank you for joining us again. Thank you. It's nice to be back. Super. Merlin, when we had our our before show discussions, you cautioned us that this subject of religion was difficult for some people. Why is that? It's not just the subject of religion, but taking an analytical perspective on religion. For instance, we're going to talk about Ernest Becker's ideas regarding religion. And Becker was interested in answering the question, why is it that people do what they do? And he believed they were in pursuit of a certain kind of meaning. And he wanted to know how all walks of life contributed to that uh, pursuit of meaning, including religion. So he asks questions of religion, like the, the kinds of psychic meanings it fulfills, the kinds of psychic desires it fulfills. Often, if you look at religion from a point of view such as psychology, people will think, take offense thinking that you are reducing religion to psychology. And they might even challenge the idea that religion is of psychic meaning because they think you're saying it is only of psychic meaning. And I think it's important to realize that if we're going to look at religion from a point of view of psychology, that doesn't mean we are leaving out any other possible meanings associated with religion. We kind of want to bracket the issue of the sacred and the issue of the truth. We aren't trying to find out if religion is right or wrong or which religion is best. We're more trying to see how it is religion functions that meets the kinds of needs that Becker thinks drives human beings. I think one of the incredible things about Becker is that he was an interdisciplinary thinker. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how many people did what he did, but he said the theologians and the philosophers and the scientists, the the sociologists are all asking the same questions. They might be coming at them from different Mm -hmm. angles, but but they're asking the same questions. Mm -hmm. Is that what we're talking about here with Becker and religion? Very much so. In fact, he's of the opinion that the kinds of psychological perspectives that he brings to religion uh, reveal some things about human nature that are very true of what most theologians say. In recent generations, we've gone in the direction of a kind of feel-good religion, a religion that gives us a feeling of joy and pleasure and eliminates our stress and reassures us. But if you go back to uh, the sacred texts of most religions, they, they speak pretty bluntly about the fallenness of human nature, about our brokenness, our smallness in the universe, the vanity of most of our efforts, Remember, man, that thou art dust, and unto dust thou shalt return. Confronting us also with our death, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So the kinds of ideas that Becker brings to the subject of religion are are really very similar to the ideas religious believers and religious thinkers bring to the topic when they are trying to look through a religious lens at human nature. Well, my first uh, look at religion in this new way came with Joseph Campbell's work in comparative mythology. That was quite revealing to me in a certain way. I'd never thought of things like that. How would you uh, define the term myth? I wind up using that word a lot in my classes. And again, in in an academic study of religion, we are not asking questions of truth. We're not supporting them and we're not attacking them. They're simply set aside. And I have developed a definition, definition of myth over the years that suits my purposes very well. 
often when we look at a religious idea, students want to know, is this one right or wrong? Is this one better than that one? And I tell them that we're going to treat this as we would treat myth. Um, a myth is a story that we don't necessarily believe is historically true, but we believe that it reveals something true. In other words, I'd like them to, to set aside whether it's factual and it can be proven as historically true or, or true in any other way and simply look to see. We go to an idea that, that reaches the status of a myth with a certain assumption that there is something meaningful there. We're not there to refute it or accept it. We're looking to see what that meaning is and, and see how we can understand it. Now, when we talk about things like illusion and construct mm -hmm. on this show, and we, can we say that calling religion an illusion, that we're not denigrating religion? Could you elaborate on that a little? I mean, I think that may relieve some of the tension people feel on this subject. Because I think Becker's language makes him vulnerable to, uh, to that kind of critique or that kind of interpretation. Uh, we talked about illusion in a previous show and that illusion is a kind of worldview, an explanatory concept. But Becker also uses that idea to remind us that we are distorting the facts. We don't have all the facts. We don't know all the facts. We don't understand all the facts. That our views of things are meaningful explanations that help us make sense of the world, our lives, our finitude, whatever it might be. But he wants to remind us that an illusion is a lie, a vital lie, a necessary lie, but nevertheless a lie. To apply that to religion may insult or offend some. But if we look more broadly at the way Becker uses illusion, I think we would get another view. If we stick with the, the idea of an illusion as a meaningful explanation or an interpretive schema, even people who believe very profoundly that there is a sacred who that is responsible for religion they wouldn't deny that human beings play a role in interpreting a sacred message and applying it to people's lives and explaining it. There is a human role in making sense of religious teaching, whatever their source may be. And if we look at religious worldviews and see them as efforts to explain reality from a religious perspective, we are talking about something that would still fit in Becker's definition of a religious illusion, it doesn't push the point forward, oh, this is just a lie, this is just a fiction or fantasy. I think it's possible to use the language, because it's the language Becker chose, to use it with a full definition and do so still leaving the issue of truth aside, but looking to see what is this meaningful explanation that we get from religion, and what does it tell us about human nature and human prospects. Is it too simple of a question to ask, what is the purpose of religion? Well, it might be in general, but it's not too simple to answer you as to what Becker says okay. the purpose of religion is. Let's do that. Um, Becker believes that all religions, all of our efforts to make sense of the world, no matter what perspective we take, they attempt to do the very same thing. And this, this takes us back to Becker's ideas of the motives that drive so much of human behavior. Becker believes that human beings, in order to live a meaningful life, need to give some meaning to their lives despite the fact of their finitude and they need to place their lives in a larger context of meaning to assure them that despite the fact that they die, they have contributed, they've been a part of and contributed to something that has meaning that will outlive their short and temporary human fate. But what is unique about religion? What is it about religion that, first of all, makes it a hot potato to talk about it in terms of social science? What is so special about religion? Do you mean as, as an illusion? Uh, well, as I mean, as a topic. In other words... Why does it get in people that, so upset? Well, in that it's like it's the only time we really, in our day-to-day -day lives, most of us think about mankind beyond the cosmos in, in a way that isn't 
our everyday lives. That's you know, why I was asking about illusion. Let me do a contrast with religious perspectives and other perspectives. If we're looking for meaning in our lives, there are lots of contexts in which we can give meaning to our lives. We gain meaning interpersonally. We gain meaning from our social context, our culture, our whole culture. We have cultural worldviews that explain ourselves, our lives, give us goals, give us values, socialize us to appreciate certain things and pursue them and feel fulfilled when we attain them. And that fulfillment is affirmed by other people in that culture. Like, I'm, I'm a father. I'm, right. I'm a member of my community. Right. You, know, you, know, you have succeeded as a TV producer. <laughs> well, you as a stand-up comic. <laughs> yeah. um, those are things culture values. And when you accomplish them, you feel the regard and the reward of others' admiration for you. Now, all of those, although they move beyond the individual and the individual life into larger and larger domains, they all are still fairly much close at hand. Cultural worldviews and cultural ideologies, cultural illusions try to present themselves as though they were absolute, but they're not very successful because they're, we're aware of other cultures, other ways of living. And we then try to pretend our culture is superior, but we can't really pretend our culture is absolute. What religion has that makes it unique as an illusion as a meaningful explanation of the world, is that religion specifically intends to root our world of meaning in a transcendent realm. It's as though we have reached out to a larger and larger cosmos beyond ourselves. And religion then... is a different kind of heroism, isn't it? Yes, and a powerful one, because the modes of heroism that are available to us in culture are affirmed in those cultures. And the culture may claim and we may believe that they transcend the culture. But it's not that difficult for us to call those into question. Obviously, there's a cliche in our culture of men retiring, having given their lives to the company, to the business, and not knowing their families or communities and not developing any, any other pursuits or any other intellectual concerns or, or ethical commitments. And they wonder, what did I do with my life? Was it all worth it? That's one of those moments in which you bought into your culture's reward system and you became a hero. And you stand there in your heroism and you aren't sure it really matters for anything. Well, religion does not have the ideal of religion, I should say. I'll tell you why in a second. In its ideal, religion roots our system of meaning, our, that means our modes of heroism, in an absolute, in something, Becker often says, cosmic heroism. A heroism that is absolute, which means it is, it is binding for all life, all creation, all societies, all cultures, all times. That we've somehow transcended the values of our own limited environment, um, our own time, our own place, and we get the sneaking suspicion that some of those values are really suitable for our culture, and they advance our culture, they promote our culture, but we're not sure that they really are absolute goods, and that suspicion is, is back there nagging. With the ideal uh, hero systems of religion, that kind of anxiety is supposed to be quieted. As we attempt to attain religious heroism, Becker says we are reaching out for heroism at its highest, most absolute, ultimate level, and we should be confident that whatever it is we have accomplished is meaningful on that ultimate level. But Merlin, you've written that religious heroism is not safe. What is it about religious heroism that is not safe? A couple of things, and this brings me to something Becker acknowledges. Becker believes that those religious illusions and religious hero systems 
are the safest. But one of the things um, he he says that's true in the ideal. He does not believe that most religions work that way now. He says uh, there are two reasons actually. One of them is too many religions have allied themselves with the cultures in which they live, and when religions are enmeshed with culture and work to support culture, their hero systems become the culture's hero systems. And when culture and its hero systems are discredited, religion is discredited as well. He does believe that there are plenty of people who struggle for a more authentic religion and who are struggling to know through their religions not just the goals of their culture, the prerogatives of their political system, the desires of their administration, the economy. Those religions are trying to give human beings a a further beyond, a more transcendent realm, um, a more universal appeal, not just to limit itself to the culture. The problem is we live in such a pluralistic world right now. Pluralism taxes us. It makes it very difficult for us to believe in our illusions because when people behave, believe the same way I do, they're affirming me and it affirms my confidence that I have found a meaningful way to live. But when there are lots of different kinds of meaning systems standing next to each other, no one, no particular system can gain the level of confidence and conviction. It can't, it can't arouse the kind of trust and confidence that it could in um, an environment where there's only one religion. And part of the danger, I guess, is the deity, the God, whatever, is on our side and he can't be on your side and what I'm going to, to, to prove that I'm going to have to kill you to, to show whose side God is on. Exactly. And this is another way that religion is used to serve the purposes of a culture. For any of our illusions, whether religious or not, we want to believe that they are giving us a meaningful way to live and a meaningful mode of heroism. And we can do that best when other people are in agreement. And I think most of us, I think you discussed this on an earlier show, any kind of difference can threaten us. I often tell my students that while there's the option of looking around at the world and seeing differences in terms of variety, we don't tend to do that. When I see something that's different, I tend to interpret it as a disconfirming other, a no vote, a challenge to what I believe in the way I live. And there's an enormous temptation, more than a temptation, often we feel it as a compulsion, to prove the value of our hero system by degrading or destroying the hero system of another. This is especially dangerous with religions because you appeal to an absolute. I often tell students that we can do our most noble but also also our most brutal things in the name of religion because it gives us an absolute rationalization. Our tolerance for difference is very weak when our anxiety is high. We want uniformity, we want unity, we want the confirmation that that kind of agreement gives us. It seems like our anxiety is high a lot these days. Mm -hmm. We're afraid that we're going to get fired. We're afraid that our 401ks are going to go down the drain. We're afraid... Our airplane is going to get hijacked. (laughs) That that the terrorists are going to explode a bomb or give us anthrax. Or It seems like every time you turn around, the TV is saying, be afraid. What effect does that have on us? Is that when we cling to our these belief systems and our, our religious and our values? Yes. All of our illusions function to help us control our anxiety and terror. And when our anxiety is aroused, we want the reassurance of our illusions. We, we talked about this in a, in a previous show when I was here before. We need to believe 
those illusions are a way to cope with anxiety when our anxiety goes higher. Our dependency upon those illusions, our desperation that those illusions work for us and are confirmed by others also increases. How does Becker, Becker's work, help us deal with or understand what's going on in the world? If I have a, a Becker-informed perspective and I turn on the TV, does it help or hurt? How does Becker help us relate to what's going on in the world? I think we often think of violence as irrational, and we are mystified that human beings at this point in time cannot get control of their destructive tendencies. And Becker, in my use of Becker, he helps me understand that there are certain kinds of drives in human beings, these anxieties we're describing, that have not been brought under control merely because we're in the 21st century or merely because we've gained wealth or because we have the resources to barricade ourselves in safety and the weapons to threaten anyone who threatens us. There's something deeper and more profound in our anxieties. And when our anxieties are aroused, if we can't reassure ourselves in a constructive way that my life is meaningful and the contributions I've made are of lasting value, then we tend to destructive responses. I can assure myself that I'm high by making sure everyone else is below me. I can assure myself that I am of value by persuading you that what you do is of no value. That anxiety for our own value, worth, very easily becomes a desire for dominance, a willingness to degrade or oppress others, to to show our power, to show the rightness of our way of life. Too easily, I think, our desire to be valuable can be translated into a might-makes-right kind of a interpretation of what's around us. It's, a very, it's very tempting to try to use power to prove to people that we are better, more valuable so we're than back, they. We're back to self-esteem again. That's right. Uh, but we're, we're looking at this repression of the fear of death as being this driver, engine. yeah, the engine for all of these awful things. Mm-hmm. That, and, and we take the most noble thing that we have, religion, and we turn it into a source of evil. It's incredible. Becker wrote about religion as a quest for the ideal heroism. Mm-hmm. And you wrote the following. The mystifications Becker considered most likely to serve human beings in a creative and life-enhancing way are religious mystifications because these provide a beyond that secular illusions cannot provide. If our present secular heroism, which is hierarchical and exclusionary, fails many of us, is Becker right? Is authentic religion really the answer? Today, Becker would say as long as religion allies itself with culture, culture's goals, and culture's values, no. But in the ideal, he believes that it is. What would it take for us to give up the meanings of our culture? Those are the most near at hand. We get information about how we ought to live, and then we are affirmed and rewarded for doing so. That's a very, very difficult thing to turn away from and to live without. But part of the power that makes religion unique and that makes that gives Becker this confidence that religion can play this role is in, in rooting our value and worth in a transcendent that is ultimate, eternal. That's the kind of leverage we need to give up culture's values. It's the sort of leverage we need to be self-critical of our heroism, self-critical of the, our culture. Kierkegaard, and Becker has a lot of Kierkegaard in in denial of death, 
Kierkegaard believed that anxiety, this out-of-control anxiety, in fact, that you're describing, was useful because anxiety, it took a desperate kind of anxiety for us to give up what we had and take his famous phrase, a leap of faith, into the unknown, into the ultimate. And Kierkegaard, because of that, he held us to a sta- an ideal standard of living with that crushing anxiety because it was worth it as a way to faith. It takes tremendous courage. Yeah. Well, our guest has been Dr. Marilyn Mowry, Associate Professor of Social Ethics, Department of Philosophy and Religion, Central Michigan University. Marilyn, thank you for another wonderful discussion. Thank you. You've been listening to an interview with Merlin Mowry, talking about many aspects of religion. And Steve, first, I think we should start with where we stand on the question of religion. Although I grew up in the church, I am now an agnostic. Me too. And I'm, I'm a humanist. Yep. And in my humble opinion, no human mind can verify or dispute whether or not the universe is intentional, any more than an ant can determine the intention of the farmer who ran over his anthill with a tractor. The only reasonable position is agnostic. You can't know if God or some supernatural power exists one way or another, and you just have to live with the uncertainty. The rest is up to individual temperament. If you're inclined to believe, and you seek and need belief to have a reasonably happy life, you believe. If not, you accept a secular world and find other ways to be happy, like a prescription for Zoloft. (laughs) (laughs) Got to plug Zoloft, right? There you go. So, Ken, what's your takeaway? Well, Merlin talks about the purpose of religion, and from a Darwinian perspective, how does religion improve survivability of the species? Mm. Is it like music? Uh, I'm not... 100% 100% sure how we come up with this yep. as, as a species. I mean, I'm glad that we did. I'm really glad we came up with music. The dread of inevitable death uh, could be debilitating. Questions like that, yeah. religion, music, were debated and wrestled with by Darwinians and evolutionary psychologists because they couldn't explain them in terms of survivability. Mm-hmm. Now, they could explain some of them in terms of sexual selection. Oh, that's true. That's true. Which is very, right, which is very possible. But it has been one of those things that you just can't explain. How come humans have art and music and dance and theater and, you know, all these other things? And how come they have religion? Well, it's, it's really good that we have all of those things because you just named some, some of the best things that there are about being alive. Yeah. So religion is the perfect defense against the dread of death and the residual death anxiety that remains and that we all share to some degree at various times. Right. And that is the classic Ernest Becker response. And Merlin said religion is an illusion, and in Becker's terms, it's a vital lie. It's vital, but it's a lie. Okay, well, and this is this is where my back can go up a little bit at these Beckerisms, because that gets back to what you said earlier about needing belief uh, to have a good life. And Merlin discusses Mm. myth. She actually defines the word myth in there, and she says it's something that we we know not to be historically true, because it just doesn't stand up under historical and scientific research. But 
It contains truth in the story that it tells, like art does frequently also. It tells a story and gets a message across to you that it would be difficult to get across in any other way. And so people like to, Sam Harris and company like to disdain religion and just dismiss it with a wave of their hand. But I think that's extremely short-sighted and it doesn't, it doesn't show a very good knowledge and understanding of history and the history of human evolution and survival. I mean, people had to put up with stuff that you and I can't even really imagine now. True. And uh, religion helped people get through things that were just unspeakably horrible. And if they hadn't had something to hold on to, they may not have made it. I mean, we may not have made it as a species. And whatever you think about religion now, it came from that. And so it's been a cornerstone, one of the pillars of society, to use that term, government, business, and religion are the the three biggies, historically. But when those guys say, we don't need religion anymore, let's just get rid of it, and they just want to like take it off the page like we never needed it, I think that's wrong. I think we oversee the decline of religion at our peril. I, I not that not that I have anything to replace it with, I don't. Not that I would then turn around and say, "Oh, well, since we need religion, I'll become religious." I can't. No. I can't. Once you're told there's no Santa Claus, you don't go back to believing in Santa Claus. I hate to use that analogy because it's kind of trite, but it's a good analogy because Santa Claus is one of those things that introduces awe and wonder into the world for children. I mean, it's a, just a magical thing to believe with that this big, this big chubby dude in a red suit's going to fly in your house and go down the chimney and give you a whole bunch of presents. <laughs> I mean, that's just great. That's just great. How can you not love that? Yeah, but like you're saying, oh, myth is not historically true, uh, but it points to truth, and you like to believe in certain things when you're a child and you grow out of it. But we've got people, fundamentalists in this country, that will maintain that their holy book is written by, or at least dictated by God, and every single word is true. Every word in the Bible, every word in the Torah, every word in the Koran. I know. It's true. It's These are factually accurate, historical truths. The whole state of Israel is based on the, on the idea that the Torah is literally true, and God gave this land to his chosen people. And you say, I know. Okay, it's an illusion. Well, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, you, I think you got to try to relax some of that. I mean, what people have been doing for 50 years at least, if not 100, is is trying to find another way of looking at it so you don't have to right. You don't have to throw the whole thing out. Joseph exactly Campbell right. talks yes. about when he's talking about uh, the, the Star Wars trilogy and how they talked about the Force. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, George Lucas took a standard mythological themes and just put them into a new a new set of metaphors right ones that would talk to people today we don't relate that much to guys walking around in sandals in the desert but you know we do relate to luke skywalker flying through space and trying to defeat darth vader and the death star and all that so if you can talk about something about like the force that is communicating some of these old ideas in a new way and and it did inspire people absolutely very much. Yep. I mean, there was a whole generation that was raised by Star Wars as a almost like a religion. True enough. Yes. I think Harry Potter was a little bit of a religion. Yeah. 
it had some of that. You're absolutely right. It had some of that stuff in it. Some of that myth. and, And what Merlin talked about, joy. Yes, she did. That's a great word to bring up because if, if you said what's really missing today, that would be a word I would say. Yeah. Yeah. But when you think about people in these Baptist churches singing and actually going into trances and they're just filled with the spirit, they're filled with joy. The rapture. The rapture they're in the rapture. And what have we got in our secular materialistic society that comes close to that? Well, we have tech. Yeah, right. That hard, we, we have tech. Hardly, hardly the same thing. No, they're certainly not. But you said, "What are we offering?" And I said, "I." That's my answer. What we're offering? Oh, I see. Yeah, we're offering. We're offering that. Yeah. That's that's what's on offer. But it's not going to approach a rapture unless you're supplementing it with some kind of uh, chemical enhancement. Unless you're in a car commercial and you're leaping up and down because you got a new car. But in reality, that feeling of joy lasts about 30 minutes and then after that it's just a car well it certainly lasts less than 30 days from the time the first payment comes due <laughs> yeah that that's a there's an awakening huh there's a wake-up yeah. call but Ber- merlin also talked about awe and wonder that's part of the religious experience yes but i i'm a fan of neil degrasse tyson i love his podcast star talk yep with chuck nice the two of them are great together and Astrophysicists like him find awe and wonder in experiencing the majesty of the vast universe and its many mysteries. And when you think about our earliest prehistoric ancestors, they all, every single one of them, looked up into the night sky and looked at the universe that was spread out before them and had to respond with awe and wonder. We don't have that today because of light pollution in cities and heavily populated areas like where we live. Anytime you have the opportunity to go out and, and take in the night sky in a dark place, I mean, that, yes. that still gives me a feeling inside looking at that vastness up there. It's easy to gloss over these things, but these are not small things. No, not at all. I, I liked what Merlin said about some religions becoming too closely aligned with the cultures in which they live. Yes, and I when like that, that hap- very yeah. much. It's a, it's a Becker idea. When the culture loses credibility, which cultures inevitably do, yep. their explanations lose the power that they once had, then the religion that's tied to it also loses some of its its power. That's right. And, and, I- and it wouldn't it wouldn't have lost that if it hadn't, committed that sin of getting allied with the culture the religion was supposed to float above it right exactly right and i think we could say that about the american evangelicals or fundamentalists yep for example their anti-gay bigotry it's not religiously motivated in my opinion i mean they make they pull something out of the bible about you know lying with a man is is an abomination but in the same paragraph they say Eating shellfish is an abomination. The whole thing's a joke. Yeah. So you look at this obsessive support that they have for in their defense of President Trump. That's hardly religious. I know. One writer, I forget who, he said, beginning around the presidency of Donald Trump, Christian conservatives have largely refrained from engaging in debates about sexual morality. Huh. 
I wonder why. I wonder why. Most people scratch their heads in disbelief that religious people support and defend this lying, racist, strutting fornicator <laughs> who uses the Bible as a prop. Pardon me. Yeah. Many people assume it's all about abortion, which I accept that, and I, and I too, believe a lot of this has to do with that, yep. that one position. But I think it's also that the Christian right has climbed into bed with the political right. Yeah. And religion has often been aligned with conservative elements of societies throughout history. Religion became the purview of the conservatives with the moral majority in the Reagan years. I don't That's know if you right. Remember I remember that. that. But, yeah. Oh, yeah. And scholars have said, you know, the religious right had actually been involved in politics for most of the 20th century. Well, you know, that's not always the case in Latin America and other countries, but it's frequent. And it wasn't always the case with the Catholic Church, when the Church supported the rise of the labor movement in our country's history. Back then, the Catholic Church was the church of the little guy. And the big guys were Protestants, Anglicans, you know, whatever. So you look at evangelical Christianity— it is now aligned with the radical right, like Jerry Falwell, who says, well, the religious right is solidly in place, and religious conservatives in America are now in for the duration. I mean, this is, this is their position, some people's position, and it's just a cursory glance at Google or Wikipedia. It shows us that the Christian right is advancing socially conservative positions on issues including school prayer, mm -hmm. intelligent design, yep. embryonic stem cell research, yep. homosexuality, euthanasia, contraception, mm -hmm. sex education, sexual promiscuity, abortion, yep. pornography. All of these policies that the conservatives support now have this religious fervor behind them. At the same time, the Christian right supports policies like tax cuts and policies such as child tax credits mm -hmm. and funding for private schools. Yeah. Now, you can say, oh, this has something to do with religion, but really? <laughs> I mean, it it's a stretch to think that God cares whether there are tax cuts or not. Cares very much. Or what the size of the government is, right? <laughs> so, well, so we talked about tribalism before. Some of it is definitely that. I notice that the religious right doesn't seem involved in race relations. I think part of that is that the civil rights movement was led by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. That's right. And so there was a religious base to the civil rights movement at the time. And the other part of it is that modern Christian right leaders are actively trying to recruit African-American religious conservatives into their political schemes. Sure. And then, of course, for the Christian right, gay rights laws have come to symbolize the government's allegedly unconstitutional interference with individual freedom. Now, I interpret that individual freedom in this context mm -hmm. to mean they want the right to discriminate against someone in the LGBTQ community on the basis of religion when in fact it's just bigotry looking for a reason. And to my mind, this all comes down to a choice between freedom of religion and the common good. Mm -hmm. 
And the Supreme Court recently ruled in favor of LGBTQ rights in terms of employment. But this struggle is not over. No, it is not by... This is going to continue. That is for sure. No time soon. The other thing Merlin said, which is I found really interesting, she said, our pluralistic society makes believing in our religious illusions difficult. Mm-hmm. And this goes back to terror management theory. Religion lacks credibility as a source of cosmic truth and absolute heroism when people aren't in agreement in a culture, which is our pluralistic culture. Right. And any kind of difference can threaten us, threaten our equilibrium. Mm -hmm. It's what she calls disconfirming, a disconfirming no vote, a challenge to the way you live. Well, that's right. Steve, I think it must have been much easier to live in a society where everybody more or less agreed about just about everything. And there weren't uh, any big upsets that you were going to have to contend with. Yeah, there are two churches. Yep. Two churches across the street <laughs> from each other. One's the Presbyterian and the other is the Baptist. Or- that's, as, that's as different as it gets. And so often we find that there's a compulsion in people to prove the value of their own hero system by degrading or destroying the hero system of another. Yep. Now, the problem is that's a very dangerous activity with religions because they appeal to an absolute. So you want to be absolutely right, cosmically right. Yeah. And religion gives an absolute rationalization for brutal behavior. Mm-hmm. And Merlin says, our tolerance for difference is very weak when our anxiety is high. I think that's right. Interesting formula. Yep. We asked Merlin how Ernest Becker's idea helped us all to understand the world. Yep. Merlin said that Becker explained there are certain kinds of drives in people that have not been brought under control. There's something deeper and more profound in our anxieties. And when our anxieties are aroused, if we cannot reassure ourselves in a constructive way that our lives are meaningful and the contributions we make have lasting value, then we tend to destructive responses. Desire for value and worth easily becomes a drive for dominance, for might makes right. Boy, and that's what we're seeing right now Yep, with the, the response to the protests. Might makes right temporarily. It might make right in that moment. But people have a way of working those things out in the long run. Yes, they do. You know, what goes around comes around. It certainly does. And 50 years from now, even 100 years from now, those things have a way of turning out differently. Yes, they do. Join us next time. Like us on Facebook. Please recommend us to your friends. You can find us at www.thehubforimportantideas.com. Subscribe on your favorite platform. And support us on Patreon. We are 100% listener supported. Thank you, everyone, for listening to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. Stay safe, everyone. Stay well. Stay well.